0: All right, what's going on, everyone? We're back with episode five of a discussion about the miniseries Generation Kill. So this is part five of seven parts. We have gone in order, um, but there's been other podcasts that have been mixed in. So you might have to bounce around a little bit. But anyways, breaking down the miniseries, kind of having a discussion, I think, is the way to put it with Sayer Payne. So Sayer, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, glad to be here. We spent a couple episodes of these guys to anybody who hasn't seen the series, this is all about Marine recon, moving into Iraq in 2003. And for a couple episodes, it's all about not seeing combat and how much they want to get into the fight. And oh, my God, we're going to miss the entire war. And I mean, we know now, 17, 18 years later, looking back, that uh, nobody was going to miss the Iraq war in 2003. But we definitely got into it in these last few episodes. And one thing that stood out to me at the start of this one, Sayer, they were watching a village, no military age males, no weapons, I don't remember exactly, no threat. They were observing no threat. They blink and the village takes a couple bombs, mm-hmm. wipes out everything. And it, I do think there are certainly civilian casualties in war. I've seen different statistics for civilians killed in Iraq, and it's staggering. Even the low side is staggering. Um, so I'm glad in a sense they're showing that because it's bringing some of the reality into it, but, and, and I don't know, I wasn't there in 2003, but it seems like it's every other occurrence is civilian casualties or mistaken. Did, are you
1: getting that vibe too? Well, for one thing, we've already seen this exact scene, the last episode of the episode before when, um, mm-hmm. the company commander destroys it and then gets patted on the back from the battalion commander. Um, it's, it's you know we have seen this or when the RC uh, that uh, you know their assault battalion goes to and wipes out stuff when that's not necessarily what recon are seeing so it's obviously common and but to your point I think about the uh, civilian part I'm just starting to think of it like this and you can even picture it here like you know I think you hear a lot of people say. The 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 far right people, there's not that many, you know, just, there's just a small loud group of them. Same thing with the far left, right? The crazies on either side, there's a small amount of them. That's true, but like that's a war too, though, right? Like most people are in the middle of just trying to live their lives. That could have been when we were in Afghanistan. The two belligerents were the minority, us and the Taliban, the boots on ground, the the majority. We're just the people just trying to do their thing with like, you know, the, the equivalent of an Afghanistan of raise 2.5 kids with a white picket fence um, and just do their thing. That's, I think in most places, but the unfortunate thing is it doesn't take a lot of assholes on both sides, on the, these fringe sides to create such mass disruption for everybody in the middle that has to, you know, cause everybody has to deal with the consequence of war. And that is just the, time and time again, that is the sadness and the war is hell part. It's not just, it's not just the young that die in the war itself for whatever cause, that's a tragedy or you just give your youth up because you live with this experience the rest of your life in a way that you become awakened. But like that, that, those are all casualties too. But like really the, the real, a lot of the victims are just these civilians that, you know, they just, they're at the wrong, born in the wrong country at the wrong time, at the wrong place, all of those things, trapped in the middle of these two parties, these two uh, other opposing forces that if everybody could vote, they would just rather be left alone. You know, these people trapped in the middle. And I mean, this series is, uh, to me, that's maybe the motif of it, at least as me as the viewer at this point, where we just keep seeing it over and over again. It's not to me, this is not your action Rambo show, where it's all fun to watch people shoot off two hundred threes and Mark Nineteens and machine guns and blow up shit. You know, I'm not getting off on all that watching it.
0: I, my uh, quick thirty second Google search shows between two thousand three and two thousand eleven a range. They cite you know seven or eight different <clears throat> excuse me seven or eight different sources that that put Iraq civilian deaths from oh three to eleven as low as 100,000, as high as over a million. So to give you an idea, there's a sizable range now. And that stops that at 2011?
1: Stops at 2011, yeah. I think that's I mean, when New Dawn took yeah. over, right? And exactly though, but do we count the ISIS years? Well, part, part of this,
0: um, yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking at Iraq history, you count that, right? Um, well,
1: th- add that number then. I'm saying if we're responsible gotcha. for the Iraq war, which created ISIS, keep it going. You're saying it stops at a million maybe at 2011. Well, the ISIS shit didn't even happen until five years later almost, you know? So it's like, oh, what's that number then look like?
0: Yeah, and just to add to the, the chaos that, that is the battlefield, there's instances 100%, unfortunately, like we've seen in a couple scenes now in Generation Kill, where by all appearances, an innocent family is just standing by and they're, they get targeted. That, that 100%... Happened and, and happens and it's, it's tragic. Part of the, the violence in Iraq over the years, when we look at the what 2006 to 2008 timeframe civil war, you could just about call it a civil war. Um, major Sunni sectarian Sunni Shia sectarian violence, and you start to see foreign fighters filter in with the emergence of Al Qaeda in Iraq, which would eventually over time kind of shift into the Islamic State. There was a lot of that as well, so that even if we get up near a million, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, clear the slate for American mistakes, but um, there was just a lot of killing going on in Iraq, which is, that's crazy, man. A million in eight years?
1: Um, I mean, it's unreal to really think of, that's a number, right? We're just talking about a number, black and white. But like to actually think of that many people in one stadium, you know, one area. It's it's just sort of unfathomable. Go to I went to Ohio State, go to a football game there. It's only it's like a hundred thousand people in that stadium. And that, that's a lot of people. That's yeah, that's 10 of those. You know what I mean? Like it's unreal. And then of course, hey, by the way, it's like women and children and shit. That's a part of that. And um, but then that's the go back to then yeah when you're over there you're trying to protect your own too like that's the mission too is like there is an us or them type thing and then the war is hell where people get caught in the middle and it just sucks um and everybody gets put in these positions but obviously there's no good answer uh i to avoid it i think that we try to avoid it because we know, the, we know the consequences of it. And that is the risk of fewer people that go to war now in our society than years past, is the people that actually know that aren't as many as everyone's were that walk around in society, you know, that have actually done the job. And it's a trope that everybody knows the war veterans come back and they don't want war anymore. Yeah. Um, and then, but the people that haven't been there still think that it's a good idea a lot of times. You know, and it's just, again, hey, that's a math thing too when it comes to percentages and proportions and population.
0: Pretty early on, they push into a village and a older gentleman is trying to give intel. I'm going to skip over the part where Captain America doesn't understand and thinks he's threatening them and all that nonsense. Yeah. But but he just gives the location for an ambush that's coming up. I thought that was unique. Um, It it shows kind of the complexity of this fight, doesn't it? Like, It doesn't get into his motivation, but we've talked about it in past episodes. You can't always trust the first local that shows up with intelligence because they might be given away. They just don't like their brother-in-law, right? Or that guy robbed them in the past, or who knows what. Or it might be legit. In this case, it looks like he gave a legit tip that there was an ambush planned against the American Convoys, and it played out. I wish there was a little more information there. and Maybe nobody ever knew it,
1: but why? What was the plan? You know what I mean? Because I agree with you because he tells you about the ambush. And so then the plan is, okay, let's drive into it. <laughs> like, I don't know.
0: Well, they pushed LAVs into it, the light armored vehicles first. Remember, they pulled the recon back. Light armored vehicles went in first. Yeah, They went in first and said, we dealt with it. And then the
1: Humvees went in later. Well, that is guerrilla warfare. And maybe it's just early on in the war. But, like, the guerrilla picks the, – the, the main thing with guerrillas, you know, they're picking the time and place of the battle and the duration of the battle. They choose all of that. Unless the, the bigger power is able to kill them all at that time, generally the guerrilla gets to choose all of – the, the guerrilla sets the conditions. And so – um, it makes sense if I'm a gorilla, I'm not going to light up LATVs. I'm not going to light up tanks. LTV, yeah. LTV, whatever. I'm not going to light up tanks. I'm not going to shoot at an Apache. I will shoot at a Kyle. Um,
0: I think this showed, you know, when you're looking at military history, big picture, and I mean, I used to do this, but you'd see, like, you got to take the bridges. And I always thought, like, why not just build a bridge somewhere else or just go somewhere else? Just don't go to the bridge if that's where it's going to be defended. But you can see here, especially when they're driving up on it, and we'll get into that in a minute, but it, you're not getting those Humvees across other areas. You're not moving rapidly across this terrain feature if you just move down a couple hundred meters one way or the other. So it's, yeah, defend the bridge. You know you know that's an area somebody has to pass through. They get canalized, right? They have to move into one Small file to move across it, and it's it's. I mean, how far back in history do we have to go to see why little things like a small footbridge? I mean, you'd see it in the battle in uh in the Battle of Normandy after D-Day. Some of the fiercest fighting were over little tiny strips of land that just got you for across, you know, a small river. Because where else well, are you going to go? You got to have it.
1: I think there's two two things to that. Number one is the physical possession of the bridge itself as a tactical advantage. But then also we, we got to talk about tempo and violence of action and just um, putting, you know, putting your foot down. I'm not going to tolerate shit. I don't care who you are. Um, we're coming. We're going to kill you if you stand against us. And that, that sends messaging across. I mean, that is a very powerful message to deliver when it comes to. Um, I think that we felt that way with our sort of screaming eagle coming in. You know, we want people to know that I don't care who's been here before anything like this. You see the fucking eagle. We're not here to fuck around. That's how I felt. Um, so I think that is a part of it. So that, I mean, I get going into the ambush is also what I'm saying too. You see what I mean? Um, but that's an objective that, and that this is the military. To your point, it's an objective it's, and it's decisive and they gotta take it. And that is violent. And that right there, doing that action that's the application of violence and of action that I was talking about because the decision was made. We're crossing the bridge. So you can't hesitate. There's no, there's no half-assing it. There's no go forward, go back. It's we're doing this. Let's go.
0: I, so it's another night of the Marines watching an area get bombarded. Um, and they get to sleep or pretend to sleep or try to sleep at this point. They're probably tired enough. They're sleeping through anything. Um, like bombs going off, not far off. But I always think about what it'd be like seeing that, right? In, in a previous uh, episode talking with John Wagner, we were talking about some of those air assaults at the end of our deployment where they started hitting the LZs with bombs right before we took off. And it was kind of that, uh-oh, here we go. But those were hitting empty LZs, hopefully, to find IEDs. This is killing bad guys, hopefully. Um, knowing that you're rolling into that area the next day. I think of it, it this is like the historical thing. This is, this is the, the pre-landing bombardment at Iwo Jima type thing, right? The bombs are hitting, the artillery striking, and when the sun comes up, you're going in. Hopefully it worked.
1: Well, it worked. well back to that point, we're, now we're talking tactics in a way. Um, so I'm going to put my hindsight 2020 goggles on real quick. What I think would have made sense, you do the bombing. You gotta take the bridge. No, I think going around it, all the all, I think that's probably a better idea because then you can hit them from the flank. From I, the I, don't know
0: the, I don't know the details of where that I know, no,
1: no. We're just doing I'm saying hypothetical uh, hindsight being 2020, you know, we weren't there. But I'm just saying I think it makes sense to do the bombing, but then it makes sense to do the armored vehicles to push across the vehicle, just like you do like a crossing the linear danger area just like old school uh, ranger patrolling in the woods near and far side security, push out the armored vehicles. First, let them push past the bridge, get an outer cord on with my armored vehicles. You know, they can take a RPG a lot better than these soft skin or even machine gun rounds. I mean, an AK round is going to shoot a driver in the Humvee. I mean, they are so susceptible in it. I don't think the show even does they, – they had the part where the bullet went through the front windshield and all that. But, like, these soft skin Humvees are nothing. The doors are plastic. Just so everybody knows, the, the Humvees these guys are rolling in, there is zero protection um, against these rounds. And so, uh, yeah, that's what I would do. Armchair quarterback, far side security with armored vehicles, cord on it off kind of, and then get your people through, and then keep pushing.
0: I'm surprised. So I'm surprised at how little air power they've showed at this point. I don't know how accurate that is. Um, mm. It was a major advantage the coalition had throughout the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there's, this is just another time where I thought, if you're rolling across a bridge into an area where there is, is a likely or was an ambush, why are there not A-10s on station or Cobras like we see eventually kind of come through? I don't know. Um, I don't know if uh, they were tied up elsewhere. Remember, there's an entire invasion going on. Exactly. Just one part. Um, but I'm a little surprised that there wasn't more incorporation of air power into some of these missions.
1: Not it the checkpoint, been,
0: right? They're not going to do that. But for something like this,
1: it uh, maybe a little bit of both. You're right. I think what I'm, I'm saying in a perfect world, you know. The hindsight being the armored vehicles maybe they needed to push on to something else by the way because for us as a viewer and if we're in this platoon this recon platoon yeah the most important thing in the world right now is this one bridge okay but there's a whole like you said there's a whole invasion going on so there's other crap that may be even more important than this one's yeah the bridge is important of course but it's all a puzzle piece to a bigger uh, contextual thing that's going on um but then to your point i do think that's where personality and leadership comes in i, I don't know the added the, the true attitude of Godfather or some of these combat leaders, because you definitely could have leaders thinking we can do it all on our own. Like we're just going to pound them with our own artillery. And then we're just going to punch right through and we're going to wipe them out. Other people might be like, there's a, I'm going to get as many a tens as possible. You know what I mean? Like I want to use air assets because I want to drop bombs. So I'm going to request that and constantly be, uh, up, uh, up the chain and on the net on the net trying to get air assets I, you know what are you fighting for and how are you getting there that's that is also there's science of the leadership but then the art of it too of because at the end of the day these are all humans making decisions um and they're going to go with probably nine times out of ten their gut instinct and the gut instinct might be artillery and then punch it or we've got our artillery on call
0: don't worry, we've got pre-planned targets all across the bridge. As soon as you guys get up there,
1: or if we or- need air, it can come later. We don't need it right now. Yeah, you know, I just and because remember, we're making this up. There is no manual for this type of fighting. These guys are configured to fight the Soviets. They're not configured to do this. At the end, of, are they capable of doing it? Of course, they're freaking Marines, man. They're recon Marines at that. They're the they're the cream of the crop. I trust them to do anything and to figure it out. You know, um, but at the end of the day, though, we we're not fighting the training that we did in all through the nineties, which is what all these guys came up in the nineties. Um, that generation, they're a different generation than we are, you know, this generation killed generation. So after a couple back and forths, they start moving towards the bridge under
0: nods night vision goggles. And I like that they showed it's never going to be perfect, right. To show exactly what it's like trying to move around under nods, but, I feel like they did a pretty good job. When you're in video games and, and a handful of TV shows, it seems like you flip those things down. And it's no, it's like putting on sunglasses when you walk outside. And you go, oh, now I can see better. But they showed here, I think, how you put those nods down, and your your vision just you lose depth perception. Everything is just kind of a different shade of green, and I. Hated drive. I had only very few times that I ever have to drive under night vision. Hated it. Even on like a road with very clear barriers on each side. I just constantly felt like I was going to drive off in the abyss. The fact that these guys are driving on the edge of this creek bank, trying to do these three point turns under nods like.
1: There's slight. That's an interesting thing to talk about. With the nods, because the video games has it so skewed. Like you just press a button and it goes, makes this battery noise. And all of a sudden things are green. Well, here's the thing. Most people, in my experience, don't even like wearing nods in general. They're a pain in the ass. And in fact, that's what NCOs, kind of like your senior sergeants, they're, jo- they're always having to tell people to put your nods on. Because the natural intuition is to not wear your nods. Because they're annoying. You're wearing an eight or nine pound helmet. And then on the front of this helmet, you've got this like two pound attachment on the very front. So it's already mounted and pulling your head down forward when you're already wearing a helmet and all the shit and body armor. Okay, And then you put it down. Some some of them have two eyes that are covered with one monocle that comes out that is actually seen that screws up that perception. There's a slight little bit of magnification. That screws up depth, depth perception. The other one just covers one eyeball, which is, has its own nuance. Those tend to be better, but at the same. well, not the special operations double eye one, but the single one, now you have one eye that can be darkness, like under moonlight, but then the other eye has this very bright green um, vision through it. And they're not as sexy. I guess what I'm just trying to say is they're not very sexy, and they're very cumbersome. However, there's a lot you can do under night that you can see, and it is pretty cool. And really the point of it is you can see IR lasers, and it paints – that's probably what – I don't think they're showing – are they showing IR lasers? I can't remember. I think – yeah, they showed them a couple times. That's what paints the night. You can actually shoot – cast an IR laser through night vision against a wall or something, and you'll get someone's shadow if they're behind it. You know, and like, that is badass. You know, or
0: you can point out a, you can point out a target. Press point to out a target behind your truck. Look here. With
1: yeah. the IR. I had this IR magic wand sort of thing. And you could uh for helicopters to kind of get you on the ground. And you can't see any of this without night vision. Those are all badass, but um it's extremely it's just very uncomfortable, uh, the whole night vision. And I I do think it's like it's like this is like my 203 rant, you know. The 203 is not as powerful as it is in movies and night vision is nothing like it is in video games.
0: Well, they stall out despite the driver's best efforts to get there. They, well, not despite, they do get there. And I say stall out, but really they come to a stop because the bridge is blocked. Um, And when they stop there, not having seen the show before, just this like sinking feeling in my chest, like, Oh my God, here it comes there's vegetation on both sides of the road not far off like what a perfect spot for an ambush and knowing how hard it is to move those military vehicles around they're on essentially a one lane road if you want to call it that and like that that is where an entire column can get wiped out um and it and it starts the fighting starts pretty close in captain america starts to i think it was captain america starts to freak out again and his NCO uh, tells his guy to, to start hot micing. Did you catch that? Yeah. Yeah. So radios, this is an interesting one. Radios in the military, when I push down and start talking, nobody else can interrupt me and come and, it's one I, I'm the one talking. That's it. You, I'll, I'll, you have to wait until I finish and then you can come in. But if I hold that thing down or get stuck down, now it sounds like somebody's talking, nobody else can get on the net. It's called hot micing. 99 times out of 100, it's a mistake. Something happened. They're sitting on a hand mic somewhere or whatever. And it's a pain to try to figure out where's the hot mic, who's causing it.
1: It's very annoying. Yeah. It's anger. I'm getting angry right now. Yeah. Thinking about hot mics.
0: But if you need to keep somebody off the net.
1: Yeah. Hey, that's that is the thing with the military. Here's the tricky part. It is not obey every single thing in, in strict formalities every single step of the road. And what I think, especially with Americans, when I'm thinking of American history, what sets us apart typically from other countries is our willful disobedience to kind of make it up on the fly. Yeah, there are rules set in place, but look, we're not going to follow them to the T. Kind of that rules are meant to be broken sort of thing. And this was an NCO you know, you're not allowed to do this. This is against, I don't know what, you know, they could have put him in front of the colonel and all this stuff. But like, to me, it was the right thing to do at that time. You know, and that's what courage is. He's doing the thing that, because from his personal standpoint, he could have, he had, he had, he could have problems, right. He could lose his job, uh, livelihood, uh, face, all of this stuff, get yelled at, whatever, negative individual consequence. But the bigger picture was the unit. And so he fell on that sword by making this decision that you're not supposed to make. But I applaud that decision because shit like that needs, especially in this type of environment, that's what we need. We need people to make, um, be decisive. That part is violence of action. Getting stuck on a bridge and hesitating is not violence of action. That's what gets people killed,
0: you know. But think about how big of a move that is. So he's saying the risk that this officer is going to say something stupid and not just like get, have people laugh at it, but, but cause lives to be lost. The risk of that is so significant that he's willing to roll the dice that in that time period, they're hot micing, there aren't casualties that need to be called up. Enemy targets appearing on the horizon. That risk is lower than the damage this guy's going to cause if he gets a hold of the radio. Think about that.
1: That's a good point too. I didn't mean, think about the fact that he, yeah, you, he can't communicate and call for fire. But like, it's lack of trust. The platoon leader's most dangerous weapon is his uh, radio, and that includes danger to his own guys. So you know what this I mean. Is... Like, and by the way, this decision by the NCO, we have to. Say, it's not like this is day one, and the NCO is like, fuck yeah. all officers. They don't know what they're talking about. I've been to Afghanistan. I know what I'm doing. This guy just graduated college and doesn't have to shave. We're not talking about this scenario. We're talking patterns of buildup. We're talking also communication and, and just seeing that the PL is not taking the, you know, he's just not listening. He's not developing. Um, he's not learning from his mistakes. Those are fatal flaws. Those are fatal flaws, not learning from your mistakes, not being self-aware. Um, it was necessary.
0: So up to this point, I thought the reporter's got a pretty good setup just kind of hanging out with the guys doesn't seem all that bad. But when you're sitting in a truck, uh, a light skinned Humvee with machine gun fire, raking both sides of the vehicle and you can't move all of a sudden being that reporter didn't sound like a lot of fun,
1: not up armored. Remember these plastic doors, not just, cool. I mean, just sitting there yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I
0: want to talk about, they, they returned fire for a little while. And eventually they start to roll out. I just wanted to talk about the, the fact here that they didn't really, they'd kind of half started the uh, three point turn reverse process when the contact initiated, but they had to return fire for a while. Why not just, why not just keep rolling? Why not just get out of there? They stopped and fought for five, 10, 15 minutes. Um, you want to get into that a little bit about how, what's the risk? if they just turn and go right out the gate versus stay and fight for 10 or 15.
1: I tend to have, if you're asking me my opinion on the matter, I tend to have the, the gumption to just keep pushing forward because they had friendlies behind them. And I don't like the idea of being the sitting duck. It's like, I to me it's it's similar because this is urban and it's so tricky. And I, by the way, I didn't even fight in urban. You know, these are all hypotheticals. But we trained to go urban all the damn time. Um, from lessons learned here, right? Hey, guess what? We invented bigger trucks that could just ram the ram anything that they wanted out of the way. We learned from all of this, but they didn't have that benefit. These guys again are making it all up. They're the pioneers of this type of war for us. Again, being a generation behind these guys, um, but. I tend to view it, it's the same thing as if you're approaching a, uh, a town or a village, an urban area, and you're kind of walking, and it's there's no buildings around you because you're not to the village yet, and you start taking fire. Then you, you start run, you start going, right? You put uh, a squad or whatever element starts putting rounds into that building that you're taking fire from, but then everybody else, they're moving. They're moving to get into a building, and you just, that's called the foothold. you got to get a foothold. And there's no such thing as a foothold on the middle of the bridge, right? And it's not even a foothold. That's a egress if you go backwards. And then sometimes you got to break contact. And that's what I wasn't there to know. Is this a break contact? And a break contact means um, retreat for people that don't know. It's a retreat. It's a tactical retreat. I've done both. I've had to do uh, a retreat essentially because that's not a good fight. Hey, the conditions that they're always setting are much more favored in their view right now i need to get the hell out of here and so i don't know if that was what was going on i feel like because it was so big of an off op- seemed to be a pretty big operation that um would have made the most sense just because you had everybody else behind you you just need to create that sort of pathway through and just keep pushing and lighting them up as you go Now,
0: I I, I don't know the scenario on the ground more than what's in the show and and some of this in the book, but it didn't look like they had the opportunity to push through that, right? Until they, we'll get to the point where the the LAVs come up later.
1: That's what I mean. I couldn't tell because they had multiple, you know, because you had a platoon in reserve is how I kind of picture, you know what I mean? So it's just hard to tell with, and by the way, this is from the reporter who doesn't know shit about military stuff. And he's sitting in the back of a Humvee. I mean, he is the one who told this story. So, and I'm sure he asked all the guys to get all those ducks in a row and all of this. But again, let's just think about the author and the creator of this. Everybody has bias. We all do. Um, So, yeah, of course, we don't know the facts. But I'm just saying in general, uh, I I just like getting that foothold and just keep pushing uh, if you can. And that's that's that double-edged sword, man, because people die and shit, right, when you're doing that. I mean, but you're... (laughs) You're freaking Marine in the invasion of Iraq fighting insurgents. You know, it's, there's no perfect answer here. There is no perfect answer, but you just got to make a decision and go with it. And like, again, half-ass and hesitation is is never the answer. I do know that. I think
0: this is one of the little nuances that, that uh, I do like about the series. I think they, to your point early on, it's, it's not, at this point, it's not the movie I would watch if I just wanted to see a bunch of gunfights. Um, it gets a little, it gets strangely deep in some, th- some areas that I, I didn't expect them to go. But I think it, sh- it did a good job of showing that just because they're already heading back, just continuing on that path right out the gate isn't necessarily the best move. It's almost like this, this wave of gunfire is approaching them And they have to beat that back to enough of a degree to be able to safely egress. Cause if they just continue on with that three point turns and moving around and reversing out of there, as these fighters are moving up to, I mean, dude, some of those were what five, 10 meters off the side of the road. They're going to get slaughtered. But if you can beat that back and get enough breathing room, doesn't mean everybody's dead. doesn't mean you've eliminated the entire threat, but if you can get enough breathing room, you can safely exfil and come back you know, maybe set the conditions a little better, like they do bringing in the, uh, the light armored vehicles up to deal with some of those threats before they kind of sort of push
1: across the bridge. That's true. It could be that battle was not for that night, right? That battle should have maybe, okay, we stirred up the hornet's nest. We now have more information than we had. Egress back. Let's do it a different way um, at a different point or a different time. Or find a different route. I mean, who knows? I mean, that is the that is the art of warfare. It's constantly changing. That's when they say the enemy has a vote. Um, they much definitely. They're especially again an in insurgency when they get to pick and p- pick and choose the time of battle. A lot of times, um, so you're always constantly having to adapt. Uh, but
0: you know, I'm still going to hang my hat on violence of action. There you go. It's your, it's your phrase. Um... They do clear the area, move the first truck across the bridge. Second gets stuck, others lined up behind them. Another like, "Oh my god," the worst place possible to be stuck. But they show the first truck moving through, and all of a sudden they're on their own, and that's that's on everybody. That's you know it, it. The first truck didn't get left out to dry. When they're a quarter mile into town and realize they're all on their own, it's on every single vehicle, whether you're in a patrol or whatever it might be, to to maintain that situational awareness. That means that guy didn't look back for
1: how long. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk the fact that it was hot miked, and that's going to affect your internal communications and situational awareness. If it's still, this is a little while if after. If it's still, yeah. it is a while after. I understand, but. It's a shitty spot to be in. And you're right. Everybody's responsible for that one. Everybody. And that, man, remember in this series too, we're already in this era where people have been kidnapped and executed and like hung from bridges and shit. Recently. Like days ago. Like it's on the top of their minds. And to think that they just crossed that into no man's land by themselves. They did a good job of showing that sort of peril of whoops like this is danger this is this is some serious danger we're in right now. yep like nothing's happening right now nobody shooting at us or anything but we are in serious danger i got that thought i really liked
0: i'm pretty sure it's the s3 it's dark he's got his helmet on i, I think yeah. it was the s3 came up to the bridge uh to help kind of unscrew the situation i'll use that term and he gets there and i, I liked a couple things Captain America is still just spouting off, right? He's in full-blown panic mode. It doesn't matter who's there. He's going to panic in front of anybody. He's not just putting on a show for his soldiers. His boss, essentially, the S3, um, you know, somebody. how about somebody above him in the chain of command, I'll say that, shows up, and he still spazzes out. But um, Encino Man played Division I football. He was a football player. So the S3 shows up and speaks his language, you know, along the line of, we're on the one-yard line. You're the offense. Bring it home. And you could see that it just... That's it. Got it.
1: I mean, that was an interesting scene. Um, It's... it's, I like that scene a lot, just because a lot of times you don't see majors in action. They tend to be uh, staff jockeys. Because that's what this is for people who don't know. This would be like a major. So he reports to the colonel, Godfather. But... The major, and he's like a computer guy, really. But we always forget the fact that the major was the company commander at a certain point. It's just, you know, he's infantry. He's not a computer guy. Um, And to see him kind of step in, motivate, that's what it's all about. And it just keeps on going down the line. You know, as authentic as possible. I I got authenticity. This is all acting. You know, me as a guy watching it. I found authenticity behind the major. And then, you know, I, to me, it'd be hard to follow Encino man at any point after watching them to think that all of a sudden he can, Oh, I get it now. All of a sudden, some light flicks clicks on. Um, But uh, being able to motivate and inspire people who are frozen and panicked like that, that's a, that's one of those soft skills that nobody could ever really understand. I, you know, you can't put that on a resume or you can't really describe that sort of uh how to get people to do things and communicate with them the art of it and the tact um but i think we could see that the major has you know
0: this is something that i i remember happening a lot in the military um still does to a degree in the reserves but when there's an issue and your boss or your boss's boss says figure it out that's kind of how this came across figure it out um and sometimes they can be infuriating. It's like, this is a three hour task you need done in six minutes. I don't know how we're going to figure it out. We don't, we don't have enough people. We don't, whatever it might be, but there's another side of it that that's kind of empowering and, and giving you the flexibility. It's kind of saying in a sense, like this is on you, figure out a way around it, make it happen. Don't run it up the chain and wait for reinforcements or backup or, or other assets like get across the bridge
1: you um, are here to make decisions yeah make a decision figure it out and then guess what once you make that decision violence of action <laughs> there you go um, drink that game how many times you figure say that? it out to me is the best that's what i was talking about too about the rule following where probably misconceptions how it's not about getting permission and like yes sir no sir all the time like where they're telling you, okay, you're going to move exactly this way and exactly that. No, it's just, to me, figure it out. That's what I want every time. Because that, you're telling me I can do whatever I want. You've now given me license to just do my judgment, whatever I think is best. And I would much rather do that. Because I'm the one, guess what? I'm the one who's got to cross the damn bridge. You guys don't have to in the back. You know, the major just gets to carry a pistol or whatever, and mostly sits behind the computer. The doers, um, those are the ones that you want to empower because they're the ones who have the ideas because they're the ones thinking about it as the individual, uh, the doer of the action. Um, so I'm all about that shit.
0: I do think there's some, some tact required when you say that because I've been on the receiving yeah. end when something's not going to be done. Um, in the National Guard, we had something where we had 40 soldiers that needed to get from point A to point B and enough trucks to move 10 of them at a time. And we said- great. It'll take four trips and it, two, you know, four trips, two hours. And they said, have it done in 30 minutes or something like that. Like, well, unless we get some other resources, we can't move the, these troops that distance in that time period. Um, it's training. So you end up with some safety things as well that you don't want to violate. So I get frustrated in that sense because you've heard that before where people get annoyed that something isn't happening and they just say, make it happen. It's not going to happen. Just saying that doesn't absolve you. But in the right context at the right time, I think it does unlock that little bit of, Sayer, what you got, man?
1: Take it. That's an important nuance because that also could be lazy leadership. If just, a, I don't care, figure it out. You know, that's the same thing as putting your head in the sand and not listening and communicating with your junior leaders who are the doers that are supposed to be telling you, what they think the way it should go because they are the ones who have the skin in the game the most. Um, and you want to really listen to their advice. Uh, there's no way around that. And so I agree. It's, I almost put it in the same vein as like um, when people say, I have an open door policy. That's lazy leadership. That's passive. The, the leader should go in the junior leader's office and initiate the conversation. It shouldn't be the junior leader having to like, when the problem or uncomfortability happens, that's the only reason open door exists. The senior person should be the one always checking in. Hey, what's, are you doing all right? What's going on? You know. Well, no, seriously, no, just tell me what's going on. Okay, well, here's what I got. That type of conversation would never happen if that junior leader had to walk all the way to the headquarters, have this uncomfortable knock while the guy is behind the computer, or girl is behind the computer writing an email or on the phone. You're standing in the hallway. Come on now. Active leadership, active communication. It's going to foster. It's That's how you build a team.
0: I guess funny. I'm thinking about a private trying to use that open door policy at the battalion level or something. And just how unrealistic it is that they're going to find a time to get away, to get to the battalion headquarters, walk into the battalion commander or sergeant major's office without somebody stopping them and saying, you're lost. Get out of here. And maybe they're there. Maybe they're not maybe they bump into the person that they have an issue with on their way there. So they don't want to do it. And like, <laughs> you're right.
1: Most privates don't want the battalion commander to even know their name. You know, like they don't want to be seen that. So it's incredibly awkward. And I had this conversation. I used to work at a law firm. I had the same conversation about the whole partner and associate, you know, cause you got a senior, you got a junior. And I keep, I kept hearing that. Oh, we got open door policy. I'm like, guys, the, the open door policy is bullshit. You know, because all the partners are too busy. Um, you got to come down to the minions. The partners got to go to the minions and hang out with them and see it, what they're doing. Because even if a partner did do, was an associate, that was 20 years ago. You know, you, things are different now.
0: You want to go ahead and toss out the disclaimer that soldiers aren't minions or?
1: We're all minions to someone. <laughs> I'm joking. We are all course, minions. Yeah. An associate's definitely a minion. I'll, I'll say that for sure. <laughs>
0: Let's pull back into the episode for a minute here because there's a scene yep. I definitely want to hit on before we wrap up. But they they find some of the dead bodies in the morning when the sun comes up, uh, Syrian passport, uh, start to a mm. little foreshadowing of what's what's yet to come. They find amphetamines on them. Also something that not an expert, so I'm not even gonna throw a percentage of how often uh, those were used, but I do know in the Battle of Fallujah, uh, in the first in the second battle of Fallujah, which is was really the big one that we hear about um there were a lot of cases of finding foreign fighters jacked up on the amphetamines, so that's pretty terrifying but i want to get to the last couple scenes where they're moving into this town and they find a school full of ordnance. um i think in the description it called it a bath party headquarters but it's a it's a depot loaded full of rpgs and mortars and mm-hmm. rifles and things like that and, looks like a normal day outside uh that's that's what this yeah smart you know um it's a smart move for them to put those weapons in a school because they know it's not going to be targeted right out the gate right
1: gorilla yeah. they can choose they get to choose all of those things absolutely
0: um, I always think and, that when it's, when it's like uh, fighting from a hospital or hiding weapons in a school, not, not the same degree of, of hiding behind women and children per se, but well, heck, in Afghanistan, hiding IED supplies in a mosque, you know, we're not going to bomb what the What would mosque. you do, you know, I know what exactly. would you
1: do in that scenario when you're, under, you're underpowered, undermanned, underorganized? um but you also have a lot of things that you do know that they don't know um just knowledge of the area you're gonna leverage the things that we're gonna leverage our a10s and bombs and night vision goggles because they don't have those things so of course we're gonna there's no fair fighting i want to fucking kill them and i don't want my guys to die that's the whole point of this they're doing the same exact thing um the difference being with a lot of these people, especially in, Af- well, in Afghanistan, for sure, they're okay seeking death. And that's also a big difference. Uh, they're fighting for different reasons. Um, but the whole guerrilla thing, yeah, man, uh, they got to be smart about it because they're, they're just so constrained on, limit, on, on resources. Uh, I don't fault any of that shit. I think it's bullshit when they intermingle the civilians. That's total bullshit but not civilian buildings. You see what I mean? Like this example, as I, as I see it, I don't think people were going into kindergarten there at this time. And even if they were, they weren't hiding behind like kindergartners. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I, that's a
0: good lead into a topic that I will say is good for podcast, not good for short takes. But at the very right. end of the episode, they shoot a car that's approaching the checkpoint a little early um, because a threat is relayed over the radio that there might be uh, suicide bombers in the area looking to target them. And this wasn't, again, I'm not going to try to rattle off dates from memory, but suicide bombers weren't a thing day one of the invasion. It took a little while to get to that point. You know, now when we look back at the Iraq War and to a degree Afghanistan, they were much more prevalent in Iraq. Um, spe- I'm not, not going to say that. I was going to say especially with foreign fighters. I'm um, not sure if the, the research backs that, but it wasn't always a thing. There weren't suicide bombers from day one, but that concept changed everything. Um, if you look at the first few episodes, the Marines are, there's there's people walking between their ranks. remember there was, What do you do? And you're letting these these goat herders move between the column, and there's children coming up to the convoys, and they're driving by vehicles, and they just it's it's more of an open interaction with the civilian population. But the minute suicide bombers enter the enter the equation, it all changes. Now every single civilian has to be looked at as a possible bomber, and it's on the one hand, if your goal is chaos. It's a smart strategy, but God, that just changes everything.
1: We were talking on your discord channel yesterday about, um, the cobble vest that went on. Yeah. Right. You know, and I think the person was kind of making it seem like my impression was they, they were saying it was preventable or something. And no, the point is there are tens of thousands of people trying to get into the airport where everybody's dressed the same, they look the same, the same garb, same disposition, we're trying to get through, same emotions. You will, ne- I mean, in, in a sense, we're lucky only one went off, you know, because it would have been so easy. Now, you're driving a UPS truck full of uh, explosives is different. I'm not talking, I'm just talking about someone just strapping 40 pounds on under their clothes, and that's all it is. It's not like on a movie where people have these red lights and beepers and a big clock on their chest. And a, and a, you, The way, and I've never been in a personal situation where I've had to shoot one or something, but what I do know is you're looking at kind of almost like the sweat on the brow and their eyeballs because when you are walking through a village and you're posting up security, people are walking through all the time. And the only thing you can do is hope that this isn't the day. Because there's really no stopping it. And if it is the day, hoping that you're able to see their eyeballs and sweaty brow before they're able to do something about it. You know what I mean? If that's um, even a thing.
0: Some of, these even, war- some of these warning signs, right? Not, not 100% of the time.
1: Some of them are dead set committed. But they're not even nervous. Because they've trained for it for so long. Um, it's just not stoppable. You know. the, the,
0: the last episode we talked about this, you know, civilians driving towards checkpoint and the vehicle gets shot up. I think it was the last episode. Vehicle gets shot up, young child dies in the backseat. And we've seen that a couple of times now. And you, you have this, this issue where the civilians are stuck in the middle of the conflict. And do they know they should stop? And how soon should they stop? And all of these things. T- to me, it all comes back to this. This, this. this threat of suicide bombers is, again, incredibly effective in the sense that it totally changes the way that you look at the civilian population you're around when they start adding children to the mix you realize that you realize a kid coming up on a
1: bike you got to look at differently that's insane how do we we're in war right it's the same three letters w-a-r so where you know it's just a constant problem because where does the context fit with uh, firebombing tokyo let alone the nuclear bomb sure whatever that we can we can package that as its own little thing to end the war the of all wars and all of this show of force but more people died from just firebombing tokyo because of the wooden buildings or dresden you know where we're bombing german factories and like communities around the factories because those are where the workers live we're doing all of that um they, all those civilians died for being in proximity to the war machine and all of this. And, you know, a car like this not stopping is almost like the person that's by the, you know, they're by the bomb making factory. And I'm not putting a, I'm not even defining that or qualifying it, but I'm just trying to create a parallel situation of sort of the carpet bombings and just the And that, I guess, is a newer thing in warfare. I mean, I guess that is a 20th century. You weren't really killing civilians back in the day. They were always a secondary effect, which I think is where war is evolving back towards, you know, because they were definitely a part of war itself in World War II. That helped um, in an effort to end it was killing civilians to, like, uh, kill their resolve. I mean, that was literally a point of it. Whereas here it's not an intentional, it's not as uh, intended, but it's like bound. It's just it's bound to happen. This is bound to happen, as unfortunate as it is, and that just brings me back to the point of like that's why we don't want to do these things if we don't have to.
0: If to give you an idea of how strongly I feel about this concept changing the nature of conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think if you removed all. Suicide bombing attacks, S motorcycle, truck, whatever it might be, replace those deaths with IEDs or small arms fire. So it's not like all of those casualties didn't exist. Just shift them over to another bucket. I think those conflicts have a entirely different look to them today, because I think American soldiers, coalition soldiers, are would be more comfortable spending time around the population. Um, I was never concerned that a local was going to pull out an AK from four feet away and start shooting. Um, I was terrified that somebody was going to have an S-Fest on that we we just didn't know. Um, At any point, anywhere, that's insane. If you can remove that fear, and I don't care how, well, I'll just speak for myself here. I don't know how I ever could have gotten past that fear. And I know that I would always, even when it's not foremost in your mind, you are treating the people differently, knowing that one out of a thousand, one out of 10,000, might have an S-fest on I don't deal with that in Murfreesboro. I don't have to worry when I go to the farmer's market that one of those people might have an S-fest. And I act a little bit differently there than I did in the housing Madad Bazaar.
1: And whether you're any leadership position, whether you're a team leader or a squad leader, a platoon leader, platoon sergeant, those other, if you're saying it's one out of a thousand, a lot of times the 999 don't matter. You see what I mean? Like, because you're trying to protect your team at the same time and like it's callous, but your job is to bring those guys home, especially when we get put in an unwinnable war. I think Mm -hmm. many of us knew that it was, what the fuck are we doing? They knew that early on to Iraq, the very month, a month into it, they knew. And so when you know, you know, you have this feeling in your gut that what are we even, what, what are we doing here? Then like then it, to me, at least, it's even more like set in stone that I got to bring these guys home.
0: And that to me is why I think the conflicts would look drastically different. Look at this example here in Generation Kill. It doesn't appear at this point that it was a suicide vehicle. They didn't like, you know, dissemble the thing. They didn't show as fast. It looks like an innocent civilian was shot and killed. So if you're on the other side of that, that's a win. You understand? Other side, as in the people, at, at this point, it could have been the FEDI and it could have been any number of insurgent groups later, Islamic State. Um, that's a win for them. It's further distancing this ah. occupying, invading force from the
1: civilian population. We had, we had a early into uh, Afghanistan, when we were working the gate guards, um, we had like a 14 or 15-year-old kid with a gun-looking thing, um, approaching the ECP, the entry of the gate, and um, you know we shot him. Uh, he wasn't shooting at us, but he wasn't stopping, and it ended up being like a toy gun type thing. But from the vantage point of the tower, I don't think the guy died. By the way, he got shot several times. And he may have. Let's just assume he did. Um, I would guess. What probably the scenario was probably the Taliban probably did that for two reasons: number one, to probe us, and number two, to have him get shot, a local kid, because most Taliban fighters were from Pakistan, so you get a local kid to be shot to sow discord within the local Afghan people there against the, this new unit. Um, but what I'm sitting here right now today is, I think. My guy was hundred percent in the right to do that thing. That is, that is, that's what had to happen at that time that it happened because you cannot, even if it's a fake gun, you can't tell from the guard, you can't get that close. You can't not stop. I don't care who you are. It's not going to happen. We are here now. And it sucks. That's violence of action. um, Part of it, but, and it's messaging both ways. You know, because you know what, Taliban did do a probe, and they found out an answer.
0: Yeah, I remember a night where there was a a, a warning of a, a VBID, vehicle-borne IED, truck, white truck, something like that, went out. And that was one of the only nights that I remember laying in bed thinking, like, like nervous, scared, because it's just this, it's a total disregard. Like, I don't ever remember losing sleep hearing that there were more IEDs, even though that was... biggest threat i don't remember ever losing sleep hearing that there were chechnya snipers coming in right like didn't lose sleep over that but there's a suicide bomber in the area just made my heart drop
1: um and it was all actionable and it happened you know it did happen we just didn't get hit they hit a different place you know and that was the thing too because yeah with some of the other rumors, they tended to like a... I mean, if anybody's listening here and you're in Iraq or Afghanistan, I bet you're smiling right now thinking about the Chechnya sniper rumors that you heard, because we all get them. Um, but the s ones, those came to fruition almost every time in our AF. You know what I mean? And so it, it's that hope thing when you're walking through the village. Hey, I get it. I have to do patrols in the winter. I need to do these patrols where we get there's an nest suicide bomber in the area. Not a vehicle, but like someone intermixing with the population and I got to go do numerous population engagement patrols, you know, where I don't get to just mow people down. I don't get to just shoot them. I'm supposed to, suppo- I'm supposed to sit down like cross-legged drinking tea with my guard down with my helmet off. And I got all these people coming up and running and almost like just smelling me and petting me and touching me. Um, and I got my guys on perimeter, but like, I'm putting all of my confidence in them. Uh, it's just, but the only, the only real strategy is hope that you're not at the wrong place at the wrong time. When, when that guy happens to be with the stuff, um, because it's just not preventable. It's that's the whole, the war part is there's no perfect answer. And there's so many imperfections that you just got to, you got to deal with and you just got to do it.
0: This topic of suicide bombers is such an interesting one. There's so many pieces to it. Be interesting to have somebody on that's done some research there. Talk about what they've seen in the last 20 years, um, how they've adapted tactics, things like that, because it was pretty wild.
1: I'd love to one day, you know, have some people on to tell the story of Staff Sergeant Arriba De Nera with, with our with Bravo company, who was a Staff Sergeant, squad leader in the 101st, who did see the sweat on the brow. And he put multiple rounds into the guy. He was right. This is where just his gut instinct played off. And there weren't the telltale signs but he knew and he was able to shoot him on the outskirts before the guy could, blow, but the guy did blow up and he killed Staff Sergeant Reva and he killed two others that day. But who knows what if he got into the very center, right? Cause the platoon leader would have been sitting cross-legged probably like I was talking about guys like Staff Sergeant Reva are the ones pulling cord on insecurity um, to make sure that everything feels right. And he had that feeling um, and he gave his life for that by this instinctual response of doing everything right. And, you know, he's not here for this. He is no longer here for that action. And nobody knows this story. Right. And I'm just barely touching on, it. yeah. um, but it's an incredible story of exactly what we're talking about that really happened in real life.
0: Good call. We should get into that too. A couple topics to get into on other dates, but yeah let us know if
1: you're still sticking around on the podcast just let us know you know we like feedback it helps us give us ideas and uh, directions of what you guys want to hear
0: for sure we've got uh two more generation kills there. uh this will wrap up for episode five burning dog next up is six of seven called stay frosty we will be back with that soon
1: all right
0: hey thanks for listening to war stories